before I do charge headlong into this preach, um, I feel like it's pretty important to introduce myself first. I think that's like common courtesy. So yes, my name is Tom. Um, and I'm based in like the, uh, the, the other location, the Fordingbridge location. But I do very much feel like in my heart that we are definitely family. But when you have like a family get together and you have like this obscure family relative that you may not have met before, you may try and get the lowdown on that person first before you get kind of deep and meaningful with them. Unless you've already like tapped up Dale or Nick or Paul to find out a little bit about me, you may not have that kind of, who is Tom? So I'm going to very quickly let you know who I actually am before we get down to the nitty gritty. So first of all, yeah, I'm Tom. Uh, I am I'm a, a husband to a wife. <laughs> uh, that is Ellie. She's there now blushing. Apologies. Uh, I am a father to two slightly wonderful and ridiculous children. There are the other two here, Rory and Jojo. I would tell you how old they are, but I do often forget. They're around nine and f seven. <laughs> Who's which? Anyway, carry on. Um, I have been a Christian for about 11 years. I've been going to NLCC in Fortney Ridge for about six years. Before that, I, um, I, I, I didn't tell you I'm a teacher. Also, I'm a teacher. I teach at um, Ringwood Infant School uh, in Ringwood. Before that, I taught in Southampton and we went to a church in Romsey. Uh, at NLCC, um, I help Nick with the PA. Um, I lead one of the life groups with Alice, the poetic one. Uh, I co-lead the youth group there. I anchor some services sometimes there, uh, and I preach occasionally. In short, I like to keep myself busy and have an issue with the word no. Uh, I am a cricketer where I put in more effort than talent. Um, uh, I, I have... According to my wife, an unnecessarily large collection of novelty suits. Uh, I, I think it's very, very necessary. Um, uh, lastly, but obviously very importantly, I also love God. I'm not quite sure how people do life without him. Also, a quick disclaimer, I, I can be a little bit like an excitable puppy. Not that I'm going to run around with toilet paper, kind of, behind me, more the fact that I can get quite excitable. When that happens, I tend to talk louder and quicker. I'm going to try and contain myself as much as I can. So my friends, my family, we have been plowing through Hebrews. And whilst reflecting on this, there's been so much to get out of it. Today, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 13. That is chapter 13 of 13. Now, for those mathematicians out there, I may not need to point this out, but in case you're suffering with the classic slow Sunday brain, that's the last of the chapters. And it is really important to keep that in mind as we read this and reflect on it, the fact that it is the finale of what is being looked at. Now, if I had to give a short summary of what the entirety of Hebrews is about, if you want to boil this whole book into one simple phrase, which is a particularly dangerous thing to do, but uh, this is my attempt, I've gone for this. Jesus is better. There you are. Jesus is better. So let's think about where we left off uh, in Hebrews 12. Uh, chapter 12 ended with an encouraging reminder about the nature of the new covenant. This is how it ended. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. 
But now he makes another promise. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things will remain. Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshipping him with holy fear and awe. For God is a devouring fire. So that's where we've left off. And now we go into chapter 13. Now, I'm not quite sure what uh, translations you have with you, uh, but my little um, uh, NIV version, the little title at the top says, what does it say? Hang on. Concluding exhortations, which sounds wonderfully complicated and technical. Exhortations, which is described as a spiritual gift in Romans 12, is the power of comforting and encouraging. See, early Christians needed teaching and encouraging simultaneously since the congregations faced enormous difficulties of social adjustment and division. Sound familiar? Our hearts can also be easily distracted from the biblical truth. So we also need to be exhorted. Agreed? Great. This passage begins with a series of statements applying Christian principles to daily life, then transitions into a shorthand summary of the letter's major points. Now, one thing we definitely need to keep in mind that this chapter requires you to have read and taken away the key messages from the rest of the letter. So when I talk about some of these principles, I will not be able to unpack all of the theological basis under all of it because that was the job of the rest of the letter. So what I kind of plea with you is that if I'm talking about something and you're wondered kind of where it's based or want to get into it a little bit deeper, please go back and read the relevant chapter, part of Hebrews, or listen to the preach that unpacked it, or ask someone more about it, because we're just looking at the conclusion of it today. I hope that's all right. So today I'm going to go through this chapter, pulling out some key aspects, and I pray that some sense and use will come from that. So today, Lord, I ask that you come down on me and with my brothers and sisters here today during this preach. Open our ears and our eyes so that we may differentiate good from the bad. Help us to follow your commandments and live like your son wishes. I pray this and I trust in your name. Amen. Okay, so the umbrella title for what we are talking about today is the right response. The author is calling for a response from those who are receiving this message in Hebrews, both horizontally and vertically. I'll explain later, you've got no idea what I'm talking about. Horizontally, having the right response with the people around them. Vertically, having the right response with God. Those are the two right responses we're looking for. So first of all, let's look at the kind of the horizontal right response. I'm going to read verses 1 to 3 and then unpack that. So verses 1 to 3. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality. I'll tell you what, I've got to get that word right because I'm going to say an awful lot today. Hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. 
So right off the bat, the writer is giving applications to the audience. First, they should love their brothers and sisters. Now, the early Christian movements practice, fact, practiced fictive kinship. In both language and lifestyle, they treated one another like family. The author of Hebrews has used this practice throughout the letter, referring to the siblings in Hebrews 1, 2, 3, 8, 10, 12, 13, 16, and 17. It took me ages to find all those, but they are all there. And urging them to continue in supportive relationships. Here, he only reiterates what he has urged before. Keep loving one another. Second, they should not become an insular community focused only on themselves. They can't forget to love the stranger as well. Because as it says, who knows? They, may, they might end up entertaining an angel who's been sent to serve humanity just as Abraham did. Entertaining strangers is a simple and practical way that brotherly love should continue among believers. Hospitality is an important virtue and often is commanded of Christians and leaders. In the ancient world where inns existed, they were notorious for immorality. Therefore, it was important for traveling Christians to open up their homes to house other Christians as they traveled. It was a safer and better place for them to be. And thirdly, they have an intimate responsibility to remember those who are in prison and those who are being mistreated. The author noted that they faced persecution in the past, noted in Hebrews 10, and are currently struggling against sin, which could also include an element of external persecution, which was referenced in Hebrews 12. It all links together. It's all being brought together. The prisons back then were daunting, horrible places. They were crowded, they were dark, and the prisoners were often bound and abused. And these prisons necessitated that family and friends provided the goods for the prisoners to survive. So they were all part of the same body, so the congregation should serve those suffering just as if they were going through the same horrors just as if they were like actual siblings. So I don't actually have an anecdote of my actual sister um, being in prison or, or anything like that. Um, the closest that I could remember uh, was um, when she rang me from the side of the road when her car had run out of petrol. That's the closest I got. Um, and at that moment, at no point in my thought process did I think, Ah, she'd be right. Ah, she'd be fine. My first instinct was, quick, petrol can, petrol, go. I was not going to leave my sister on the side of the road to, well, probably wait for the AA. But it's just not something that went through my brain. I'm guessing that's the kind of thing we're looking at here, is that if it was your actual sibling, if they were suffering, if they needed something to survive, we wouldn't think twice about providing it. That's what we're being called on here, is to treat our brothers and sisters as our own brothers and sisters. Okay, verses four to six. 
<coughs> the right response to family. <coughs> marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. <coughs> so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So there's not a huge amount of fanfare or explanation here. The author asserted that marriage should be honoured and sexuality in marriage should be undefiled. God will judge those who commit adultery and those in sexual relations outside of marriage. It's, there's, there's not a huge amount of uh, waffle about that. It's just straight, straight in there. So it's a striking reminder of the gap in time and culture that these issues receive such little treatments. This is becoming more complicated and a misunderstood area. And the blanket term of like a sexual immoral person requires unpicking um, as to the scope and the application, which I certainly don't have time today. It's not because I'm trying to avoid a potentially uh, topic. It's more the fact that it's not what I feel like this chapter and what we're going to get out of today. But nevertheless, Exclusive purity of the marriage relationship remains his clear instruction. The other aspect from this section uh, is that a place should exist in their lives for contentment. Literally, like an anti-love of money. They should acknowledge that, that what they have is sufficient. Scholars know that ancient house churches consisted of a few wealthy and a few not quite so wealthy, but here the emphasis lies is that an acceptance of what God has provided for them. A lack of gratitude or grasping for more wealth should not colour their lives. So, so far the writer commends concepts such as love, charity, sexual purity and contentment. These are all ideas promoted heavily in other New Testament passages. The principles given here are grounded in the letter's prior themes, such as the constancy of Christ. The common theme of this group of instructions is mostly actions and attitudes. So that has been looking a lot at that kind of that horizontal response, thinking about how we relate and respond to other people around us. Verses 10 to 16 is looking at that vertical response, looking at how we respond to God and what he has done. So I'm now going to read verses 10 to 16. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gates to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the dis disgrace that he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that openly profess his name and do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So particularly the focus from our author from the start to finish of Hebrews is how Jesus is better than the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament. In that system there was a lot of death, 
there was a lot of blood, but for all the animals that had died and for all the animal blood that was shed, none of it, we've learned through Hebrews, was able to accomplish the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' blood alone is the only effective detergent to cleanse us from the stain of sin. This is the refrain that plays over and over again throughout the book. And as our author is giving his closing remarks, as he draws everything that he has said to a close in this final appeal, well, it's fitting that he says this refrain one last time. So if you're looking at the text, particularly in verses uh, 10 through to 12, our author calls to mind how Christ suffered. Specifically, how Christ suffered outside the gate. Then he calls us as the people of God to follow Christ, to go to Christ outside the camp. But to understand what he's talking about in these verses, we actually have to back up a little bit and we have to go all the way back into Israel's history well before Christ's incarnation to what was perhaps the pinnacle of Israel's sacrificial system, the so-called Day of Atonement. So in short, in the Old Testament, the most holy place is essentially the, the, the temple. And it was known not just as the place where people came together to worship, but it was literally viewed as the place where your salvation resided. The physical building, the geographical location mattered to your salvation and your identity. And at this temple, sacrifices were regularly offered by the priests on behalf of the people as an atonement for their sins and wrongs. The important feature that our author, our author plucks out and highlights um, was what happened to the carcasses after they had been sacrificed and their blood was spilt. As opposed to the usual sacrifices where they were permitted to eat the animals afterwards, on this particular day, the carcasses of the animals were taken outside the temple and burned. It was like taking out the trash. This, our author tells us, is where Christ's sacrifice is better. Christ suffered and died outside of the gates of Jerusalem. That's a historical fact, something that we can read about in the Gospels. The cross on which Jesus bled and died to cover the sins of his people was located outside the walls of Jerusalem. In making this point, we're reminded that the one that we follow actually accomplished what the Day of Atonement can only foreshadow, what it could look to. And in doing so, Jesus became for us the better altar, that is the better sacrifice that we can truly partake in through faith today. He reorients his people's worship and salvation from a physical structure, the most holy place, to an actual man himself. And he also refocuses the location going from the inside of the temple to outside of the city gates, the walls where the carcasses were burned. That is now where God's people would worship, where they would find their identity, because that is where 
Jesus Christ is. For the first century audience, reading Hebrews, the location of your identity, if you claim faith through, claim faith in this God, changed from the centre of this physical holy building to the periphery, to the margins, to the area outside the city gate, which would have been where the poor, the overlooked, the outcasts and the disenfranchised all lived. And verse 13 tells us that the modern day audience, us, this is too where we find our identity in Christ. This outside place was originally unclean and defiled because it's where the animal carcasses were burned, but now it becomes pure and holy, all because of Jesus Christ. The cross is not the end of Jesus. It is not God's last word. Jesus not only died, but rose from the dead and shall yet bring forth the new creation in all its fullness and glory. That's the city that we look forward to when we meet Christ outside of the gates. So, what does this mean for us? What do we do if the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices has already happened? So the blood, the animals, the altar, the goats, the burning is not needed anymore. Do we do nothing? Hooray, it's done. No. There are two key applications that, we're gonna, that I would like you to try and take away from this. Responding to God and then responding to others around. Application one. Today, God's people are called to join Christ outside the city gates, to bear the disgrace that he bore. We are called to become outsiders ourselves, leaving our own desires and loves and comforts to walk outside of the walls in our lives to love all God's people. When we do this, we don't become absent of desires, loves and comforts, but those things start to look more and more like the desires and loves and comforts and hopes and dreams of Jesus Christ. Because as it says in verse 12, we are being made holy. And if we claim Christ as Lord of our lives, then we must also look to those who are marginalised. Christ himself was cast out and marginalised. He chose to become an outsider for our salvation so that the weakest and most vulnerable around us would no longer be viewed as outcasts, but as part of God's holy family. So application point one, take yourself outside of the gates to find your identity in Jesus. Point two, responding to people. So practically, what does it actually look like? Well, let's go full circle. Verse one gives us a pretty good idea. 
show love to your brothers and sisters. Within our life group this week, the first question based around um, uh, John 3, verses 16 18 was, what have you done that was radical in the name of love? Now, um, Danny and Joel are in our life group. I feel like it would be breaching some kind of confidentiality agreement if I share, but it was really lovely to hear some of the things, some of the ridiculous things that we have done in the name of love. But Jesus has shown us the greatest example of unselfish, extravagant love possible. When he went outside of the camp and endured the cross and suffered for his people, he was loving us with every fibre of his being. Loving others for Jesus meant pain and suffering. Our greatest need was to be met by Christ. It required suffering. So sometimes if we are to love others, it will also require suffering and broken hearts and being taken advantage of or being used. It's not great, but you know what? It's okay. Loving others costs something. You could say that is our sacrifice. We are commanded in this text to go outside the camp like Jesus did and bear at times similar reproach. The camp was a place of safety and security. It could be for us our comfort zone. We have to go outside and take a chance. Live by faith and not by safety. What is it that Christ has done for you? What would going outside the camp look like for you? The ancient Greek word for hospitality is literally translated as love for strangers. As in the people that are not the norm for us. We all have our little, I don't, I'm going to try to not use the word cliques. We all have our little comfort social circles. But strangers are the people who maybe are not that. I mean, whether it's conscious or not, who knows? I mean, I, when I walked in the door today, some people might have gone, who is that? Not in a, uh, way, but like a, not normally here. That's a bit strange. But do you know what? I mean, we're talking about application. You, as a body, made me feel... So, that the first thing I saw when I walked in, when I tried to walk in the door that didn't open, which was almost really awkward, uh, was just someone, like, smiling through the door, going, that way. What would have been more unwelcoming if that person had seen me walk into the door and thought, let's see what happens. That would have been more awkward. But actually, you know what? I am, a, although we are part of the same family, I am a bit of a stranger here today because I am not the norm but you've welcomed me in and made me feel great. You have shown me love. That is what this is all talking about. So thinking about that visitor that turns up, the person who is a completely different age that you have nothing in common with doesn't mean that you go, I can't talk to them. 
brotherly love means love for all of our brothers and sisters in Jesus, not just those who we're currently friendly with. I've also been associated with churches who seem very friendly when you first arrive, but whose friendliness is only really on the surface. Once the congregation is dismissed, the friendliness goes. The best way to show love to a stranger is to be hospitable. The best way to show love to them is visit those people who are in prison. The best way to show love to your wife or husband is to be faithful to them. A church that is in unity and mutual love will be striving to accomplish these most basic and important acts of service. But this type of love has a different dimension to it. It actually shows that salvation is real because in 1 John 3 verse 14 it says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. It's one thing to say, I love you. For John, it was more than words. He saw love the same way that God does. God wants our love for each other to be tangible. Acts of service show love is real. I mean, rhetorical question. Ask yourself this. Do I just come to church on Sundays and then never, never love or serve or think about my church family throughout the week? According to God, love must be practiced to be real. Again, 1 John chapter 3, it says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, then how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Christ loved us by actively taking action and going to the cross because our greatest need was redemption. A stranger's greatest need is hospitality. A prisoner's greatest need is a visitor. A spouse's greatest need is dependability. So hospitality is often the first experience outsiders have with God's people. Outsiders measure warmth by hospitality, by the degree to which insiders treat outsiders like they belong. That does mean that hospitality must adapt to the experience of the outsider. For instance, myself and Ellie, we've got two friends who we often invite over for food. And in the journey of us knowing them, they've gone from um, eating meat to becoming a vegetarian to becoming a vegan which has been an interesting journey to go on. Now, when we invite them over for dinner now, we don't serve steak. That would be rude. Part of being friends and part of showing love to our brothers and sisters is we've accommodated ourselves to their experience. Accommodation is different to assimilation. In assimilation, the burden is on the outsider to change for the people who are inside. Accommodation is where the insiders adapt for the people who are on the outside. And I think that's a really important lesson that we can take from this. Sometimes when we deal with outsiders in church, 
we often have the attitude that they should be grateful for what we have to offer to them. But if hospitality is treating strangers as part of the community, then we owe them the same obligations that I owe my friends. It's easy to think about hospitality in terms of what food we might offer at dinner, but it's far more difficult and far more important to think about what it means to accommodate a stranger when it comes to do things as we do as the people of God. We, the church insiders, have things just the way that we like them. We are creatures of routine. We have songs that we like, we turn up at the time that we like, and it works. But if we're going to welcome outsiders, then I think we bear the obligation to listen to those people who are not like us and be open to change. Hospitality, loving, and going outside the gates will and should cost us as it did for our saviour. This is such a perfect message for now though. Think about us as a church family. We have been thrown into strangeness. Like me turning up today. Our church family is growing. We have the site in Wimborne. We have the site in Fordingbridge. And then when we come together, we are thrown in with brothers and sisters who are strangers. Now, this has been a bit of a mind job for me. By nature, it feels like my character is quite a outgoing, happy, vibrant, whatever. But I tell you what, on reflection, thinking about it, at things like the family gatherings, at the one church weekend we've had, I look back and I worked out how many strangers I spoke to and I reached out to. Oh, that was not a nice little journey I went down because I realised that all I did was speak to and hang out with the people that I'm, I already know, my norm, my social circle. So I'm really sorry for that. I felt so convicted. I'm, I'm sorry that I, me personally, that I didn't reach out and get to know more of you then. And it's something that I'm going to, I feel like the growth that I'm going on. El That's awkward. I think that's quite good. So Ellie, I mean, talk about opposites attract. She is quite, quite introverted, but her gift is actually spotting those people who are a little bit more on the outside and will kind of go along and have a little chat and make them feel welcome. So that is something, that's growth that I have gone through through preparing for this. I just wondered if, there's, if there is someone else who feels like that, hopefully that is a bit of a prompt for you. So, bands, if you'd like to come up as we finish up. Also thinking about, we're getting towards Christmas, which is a really perfect opportunity. That's where, that's the one time of year where people are more outward looking, ready to invite people to things. I mean, hey, talk about making a stranger feel valued. The messages on the chairs. I mean, that is such a great opportunity. So they're not, that person who gets that is not just a number, not just another count. Hooray, we've got another person in for our church service.
So there's two things I would specifically like to kind of pray about. Pray for us as a body. I feel like there's someone either listening to this now or maybe listening to it online later who's been really like struggling. They like, they really want to be hosti- hospitable. They're terrified of the repercussions of what might happen. It might be, you know what, there's someone who I don't really know that well, who I want to invite over, but what if they say no? Or what if I don't like them? Or what if they, what if I don't, uh, what if I don't know? I, I feel like that's something that God wants to kind of work out with you today. He wants you to reach out. He wants you to have to maybe endure that suffering, but it's okay. The, uh, those messages for the Christmas card things. Maybe today is that time where God is going to speak to you and you need to get writing. So when we're having our sung worship, be open. I feel like God wants you to get ready to welcome in those, uh, those people for our Christmas services. And also, oh, this is a bit of a heartbreaking one for me, but I felt like someone's gone through that, putting themselves out there, being hospitable, and been really hurt, and they're still suffering. They feel like they're brokenhearted about it. And God wants to say, it's all right. Think of the heartbreak that Jesus went through. So if you're heartbroken, it's okay. And God wants to work in that. God wants to heal. So if any of those prayer points feels like it's relevant for you, then seek someone out. There's some amazing people here that will pray. I'll pray for you. Dale, you up for it? Yeah. So if any of those things are relevant for you, then please do. But also be ready for God to speak to you about those Christmas invites to write on. I feel like God's going to be speaking to people today. Amen.